You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Kikatema, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen isakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is a store mystery for many people, and I try to demystify this program with my cook guests. And my guest today is Craig Mott, who is a writer, author, and photographer based in Japan. Also, according to his website, he is a walker, and we'll talk about it, what it means. And Craig has spent over 20 years in Japan and has produced a lot of valuable work capturing Japanese daily life objectively, as well as being an insider. And his insight into Japanese culture is impressive, and I have learned a lot from his curious observations. So, today we'll discuss how Craig got into Japanese culture, his unique perspective of Japanese daily life, how walking helps him to discover the depths of the local culture, Craig's love for the unique Japanese cafes called Kisaten, and much, much more. But before we start, Japanese is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as, well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Craig Mott. Hello, Craig. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, this is exciting. I, I'm a reader of your newsletters and It's, as I said, I learned so much from your observations. So let's begin. So, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Hi. Well, yeah, thank, thank you for reading.、Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs>、um, <laughs> I, I grew up in, I, near Hartford, Connecticut, and I grew up eating really nothing exciting. All of the food I grew up eating was, was super boring and super basic. Like, I basically ate. Spaghettios, like Chef Boyardee, you know, canned spaghetti and、uh, fried bologna, lots of fried bologna, some grilled cheese sandwiches, lots of those,、um, lots of white bread, fruit roll ups,、uh, Snickers, peppermint patties,、uh, lots of Wendy's hamburgers, cheeseburgers, french fries, Wendy's milkshakes. It was, it was like, Honestly, I'm surprised I'm alive and I don't have、uh, <laughs> some sort of like terrible, terrible disease right now <laughs> based on my, my childhood <laughs> diet. It was truly, I mean, truly unbelievably bad, but、uh, I, I survived. I made it. Yeah. Well, I, somebody said that your whole body, entire body cells and get rejuvenated like three months or something. So maybe because you live in Japan、yeah. now. <laughs> but, you know, I have to say. Yeah. Well, <laughs> phew. Yeah, well, but you know, you had ultimate really delicious comfort food of America, which I happen to love as well. So, yeah, you're taking、yes. both the best of both worlds. Yes, yeah, it was all, all easy comfort food mainly. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, we need it sometimes. You know, we are just too strict about, you know, what culture is best, what cuisine. And we just enjoy go to Japan and eat the best food in America. Why not? Right. So, yeah. Okay, so uh, so what was your first encounter with Japan and what was your impression? Uh, well, I mean, when you say first encounter, do you mean like actually coming to Japan or just sort of becoming aware of Japan as a place in the world? Yeah, yeah it can be either way because some people just like sort of, wow, this anime on the screen or just happened, ended up like on a stopover or something and stayed in an airport in Tokyo or something like that. So either way. Yeah, no, I mean, I first, uh, you know, I guess I first encountered Japan or, you know, like the soft power of Japan cultural exports um, in video games when I was like five, six, seven years old uh, with the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, and just being completely kind of seduced by games like Zelda. I just wrote an essay yesterday about Zelda, actually, um, and how like it's been this kind of weird constant in my life for the last 36 years. Um, but Zelda certainly, like, I understood that these things came from a place called Japan. I didn't, Japan, that didn't really mean anything to me. It just, all I knew is that these things I loved as like a six-year-old, seven-year-old were coming from this place that was very, very far away. Um, and so, you know, it just kind of created an awareness that Japan exists in the world in a way that like, say, you know, I wasn't playing with like Israeli video games, you know, when I was a little <laughs> kid or something. Uh, so I didn't know about Israel. Um, but, you know, Japan video games, it was like, it was, you know, it was interesting. And then I'd say the yeah. first time I encountered like raw Japanese, like Japanese, Japanese people, unfiltered, not, you know, not first or second generation immigrants, but just like people from Tokyo was when I was 13 and I went to Waikiki. My grandparents kind of took me to Waikiki. We did this like, I don't, it, it's insane to me. We didn't have that much money growing up. And I think you could just get these package deals to Hawaii that were not that expensive. And we'd, you know, we flew economy and it was, you know, it took forever to get there. It was kind of crazy thinking back how far we went to get to Hawaii uh, as opposed to say like getting on a plane and half half the distance you could be in London or you could be in Paris. We didn't do any of that. So Waikiki, uh, early 90s. And if you know anything about Waikiki's history, you know that the 80s and 90s were basically just, right? It was dominated by Japanese tourists and businesses kind of taking over Waikiki in this really kind of all-encompassing way. And so I remember just getting to Waikiki and our tour guide, being fluent in Japanese and him just interacting with all these Japanese tourists that were sort of coming along with us on these tours and speaking to them in Japanese. I just thought, wow, that's impressive, you know, because I had been exposed <laughs> to, you know, not Japanese, but like Spanish and, uh, you know, um, uh, some other languages. But to just kind of see in Waikiki on that strip, you know, all these folks who had just essentially teleported over from Tokyo um, and everyone was really lovely and nice. I, I, in America, golf is really cheap. You can play 18 rounds of golf in a public course for like $5, or you could when I was a kid. So I played golf and I went to play golf in Hawaii and they teamed me up with two Japanese businessmen. I was like 14 years old and, um, they were, you know, in their thirties or forties 
And they were asking me things like, are you married? And I was just like, who are these people? <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> they were so, they were so sweet, but also like so disconnected from all the reality that we were like kind of existing. And one guy had a hat on that, you know, these are like businessmen. One guy had a hat on that said, hoof arted. And so if you said it fast, it's who farted. (laughs) What? Anyway, so, you know, little things like that kind of came together. So when I decided at 19 to study abroad, um, I thought going to Europe was easy. I could do that whenever, you know, if I go to England, I can look like a British person. If I go to France, I can be a French person. If I go to Spain, I'm kind of like Spanish. I can just kind of like blend in. And I thought it'd be more fun to challenge myself with a language I didn't know in a place that I couldn't blend in. Um, and so I decided to study abroad in, in Tokyo when I was 19. And uh, that was how I first got out here. Mm, wow. So you could uh, pass without knowing you are surely, slowly but surely you're on the way to Japan, sounds like. Yeah, 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 right. exactly. Okay. And then, uh, according to your website, uh, craigmart.com, which is very cool, uh, you are a writer, photographer, and walker. So you write a prominent publication, um, like for the New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and Wired. So, and you have published several intriguing books, which we'll talk about later. But what do you mean by walker? I just do a lot of walking. (laughs) You know, I've walked... (laughs) I've walked from Tokyo to Kyoto twice. I've walked thousands of kilometers, you know, down in the Kihanto. Um, you know, I've done other walks up in Yamagata, you know, on the, the Niigata. Uh, or is it Niigata? The, yeah, Niigata, Nagano um, sort of prefectural lines. There's a, there's a, there's a nice uh, long trail that you can do there. Um, but I've done... Yeah, Rokujuri, Goikaido, all sorts of, you know, historical routes um, in different parts of Japan. Also all over the world, too. I've done big walks in, in southern China. I've walked uh, a couple hundred kilometers of the Camino de Santiago. Um, so, you know, I've done big walks in England, stuff like that. So lots of walking. Mm. So uh, did it start, um, you know, your love for walking started in Japan? Or how, how was walking so special in your life? Yeah. I mean, I started walking. I mean, you know, walk, everyone walks, you know, if you can walk, most people walk. A lot of people like walking. It's not, it's not too special a thing. Um, but I think my first real like kind of memories of being sort of ensorcelled or seduced or kind of like moved, um, by big walks were when I was, you know, first over here when I was 19, I would take these big long walks in the middle of the night um, through, you know, like Shinokubo and Shinjuku and, you know, over into Yotsuya and down into Jimbocho and you know, Kudanshita, Kagurazaka, kind of do these big, these big kind of late night to- Tokyo walks. And they were, they were just to me so beautiful. I mean, I loved, you know, moving through the city and I loved, you know, the safety you felt, uh, you know, where there wasn't really this sense of danger present. And I loved just bearing witness to, all these lives that felt so close, you know, the way Japanese apartments and houses are constructed, you know, so much is sort of bleeding out into the, into the streets, into the alleys. You can hear everything that's kind of going on in there. And, um, I just found, I was just really moved by, by that experience. And I just kept doing more and more and more of these kind of night walks. 
And uh, so that that was sort of the first real connection for me between walking and poetry or walking and and kind of the beauty and uh, you know humanity and uh, sort of ethnog ethnography and anthropology. And then about 12 years ago, I started doing um, more formal historical walks along the Kumano Kodo in Wakayama Prefecture. And that, that really started to open up um, a lot of the walks, the kinds of walks that I'm doing today. Mm, right. Uh, what I hear from walking, you know, walking by you is uh, sort of curiosity and um, observative mindset because you can just walk and blind, you know, minded that you don't see, you may see it, but you don't watch it or hear it. And what you're so good at it, you pay attention to people normally and just overlook. And also, I think Japan is a good place because like you said, it's safe and pretty walkable um, in terms of the distance between two places, three places, and the, the past in the history, like Kumano Kodo, like you said, or, you know, the historic past and crossing from the Niigata, Nagano, in between. They're beautiful, and you, I'm sure, I haven't done that one, but it's just a really historic um, place. I'm sure there's so many guys, and um, I think you are really the right person to walk in Japan because of your, I think, inherent capability to observe. But also, um, I think you're reporting in your writing uh, how interesting and precious it is because if you just visit Tokyo, Kyoto, big cities, you don't see those things, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, Japan has just such a, a rich history of walking. You know, I mean, there is so, like you're say, you say about the Nakasendo and the Tokaido, you know, and the Sankin Kotai and, the, you know, these sorts of historical, essentially walk mandates, you know, on, a, on sort of a, a national governmental level um, that, everyone would kind of head out on these roads, you know, and pilgrimages, uh, going to Issei, Issei Shrine, um, you know, visiting Hongu, you know, all these sort of big pilgrimages too. They were, you know, they were all foot-led. And a lot of these, you know, these old roads didn't allow carts. So it was all walkers and horses and palanquins, you know, and it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't buggies or any, anything like that. So it really was like a kind of a pure walking you know, culture and, uh, you know, and along the roads, what was set up was probably incredible. You know, I mean, what we have today is, is a, is a, is a, is a very sort of anemic version of what once was, you know, along, alongside these roads. Um, and so it's kind of fun to, to think back at, you know, how rich they used to be compared to sort of today where it's, you know, everything is kind of optimized around car, car travel. But, you know, a big, as you brought up about attention and paying attention, one of the things I really try to focus on on these walks is to be um, completely offline. So I try not to look at my phone ever. I try to block everything on my phone. Um, I'm not listening to podcasts. It's really a form of kind of controlled attention and just being present. And, um, you know, uh, people are always like, how do you, you know, because I always, I run into the, all these interesting people and, you know, I kind of have these little adventures and folks are always like, how do you find these people? And it's just, they're there. You know, it's like, if you just, <laughs> if you're just paying, if you're just paying attention, you will meet amazing, bizarre, wild people out in the world, you know? And so anyway, that's, that's sort of, 
you know, the, the basis for a lot of these walks is, is, is to be present and to kind of bear witness to these lives that are being lived along, along these routes. Mm, right. I have to keep that, you know, the sentence, they are there. So even on a daily life in New York or anywhere, you just pay attention offline and just so many maybe encounters with interesting people. And uh, I really have to keep it in mind. So thank you. Yeah. So, and uh, so the listeners who's not familiar with this, this Sankin Kote that Craig just mentioned. So it's a, you know, like Edo period, the shogun era, uh, the shoguns wants to control uh, the power of local wars and because they get rich, they become powerful and they may beat me. So the shogun decided to have a mandatory uh, saying hi trips regularly so that they have to carry um, all those uh, servants and whoever, and then they cost a lot of money. And that's the way <laughs> they can't accumulate a lot of wealth. And of course, along with the regular trips, there are going to be commerce, uh, hotels and um, inns and all those different businesses. So it's kind of like pluses and minuses, but it was it was an interesting system. And uh, yeah, it's interesting that you really followed uh, some of those paths uh, created by um, the system of shogun. So anyway, so we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll discuss Craig's fascinating article that led the secret city of Morioka to the number two city to visit in 2023 by the New York Times. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table, so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit coring.com. This episode is supported by HRN business members, the restaurants Popina and Gus's Chop House. Rooted in being welcoming places for people to gather over great food and wine in their Brooklyn neighborhoods. Popina in the Columbia Street Waterfront District is a neighborhood restaurant that slings pasta, hot chicken, and champagne. And Gus's Chop House in Carroll Gardens takes inspiration from European chop houses and casual bistros. The restaurants support HRN's creative educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs on Heritage Radio Network, HRN. I'm your host, Kikoteyama, and my guest today is Craig Mott, who is a writer, author, photographer and walker based in Kamakura, Japan. So through walking and many other unique activities, you have written numerous very insightful, intriguing articles 
And one of the recent ones was your feature on the city of Morioka uh, up north in Japan for the New York Times. Then the article ended up making Morioka ranked as the number two destination in the whole world to visit in 2023 by the New York Times, only after London. So even for Japanese people, to be honest, Morioka is not recognized as such a huge travel destination, but your article convinced me that I have to visit Morioka on my next visit to Japan. So, so tell us about Morioka. Where is it and what kind of unique charm does the city have? Yeah, so <laughs> apologies to Morioka for, for putting them on the map uh, <laughs> with this article. <laughs> but the um, uh, to explain it, when, you know, when I do some of these big walks, um, I, you know, walking from Tokyo to Kyoto, you end up passing through lots of, you know, sometimes mid-sized cities. And, you know, a lot of times I'm only spending a couple hours or maybe just one night in these cities. And after doing that for a number of years, I, I kind of had this moment where I was like, you know what, I want to do a trip that is entirely focused on kind of mid-sized cities that you usually never stop at. So like you either take the train and it just passes through or you just change trains at the city, but you never really get off. And so I kind of looked around the country and I wanted to go from Hokkaido all the way to the bottom of Kyushu and I picked 10 cities and it was like Hakodate and Matsumoto and Suruga and Onomichi and Yamaguchi and uh, Karatsu, Kagoshima, Yamamatsu. And uh, one of the cities that I also picked was Morioka. And um, these are all kind of like mid-ish size cities, some a little bigger, some a little smaller. But I went to Morioka, this is in 2021. And in each of these cities, I did three nights, four days. And I kind of, the goal is to try to walk 50 kilometers in each city to like really force myself to, to kind of see almost like every street in the city. If you walk 50 kilometers in a lot of these places, like you'll see everything, you'll see most of everything. And, um, and I got to Morioka and it's up in Tohoku. So it's up in Iwate prefecture. So it's just south of Hokkaido, right below Hokkaido, um, north of Sendai. And it's really up, you know, in the north, north of, of Japan. And Morioka too, you know, it's like right in the center of the landmass. It's not on the ocean. Um, and so it's, it's, it's fairly, you know, kind of surrounded by just mountains and, and plains of Iwate. And um, I didn't have huge expectations for the city. But uh, when I spent three nights and four days there, I just had an incredible time. And I, I, you know, part of exactly what you said, which is like Japanese people don't ever think of Morioka as a travel destination. Literally in 20 years of living here, no one had ever told me to go to Morioka. No one had ever even mentioned Morioka, Japanese or foreign friends of mine. I, you know, I went to Japanese university. I've been in a bunch of Japanese weddings. Like I have, I have lots of Japanese friends and none of them ever said, Hey, you should like check out Morioka if you get the chance. Never, ever. <laughs> so, so when I got there and I kind of started walking and started talking to people and started going into shops and restaurants and jazz clubs and stuff like that. And I was just shocked. People were lovely. People were open. They were friendly. They were welcoming in a way that, you know, like a city like Kyoto doesn't have that kind of reputation, right? Kyoto's kind of seen as is sort of a little bit cold. There's kind of a wall. There's a barrier you have to kind of get through. Um, I felt none of that in Morioka. And um, 
I was also shocked by how many young people were running businesses. You know, I kept going into these different cafes and they were all, you know, a couple of them were run by people in their 20s. Um, you know, or I would ask, you know, uh, when did you, how long have you lived in Morioka? You know, and they said, oh, I recently moved here to start this cafe or to start this bookshop. And uh, that was, that was just fascinating to me. Like you, you just, I've been to many, many Inaka countryside cities and villages. And it's very rare that you meet people who are actively moving to these places to, to do things. So there was clearly this kind of energy, this sort of magnetism happening with Morioka that um, to me was a signal mm. of a healthy place. And when I say healthy place, I mean, it was a place that felt like it had a future. So if you, if you walk through a lot of the countryside of Japan, it's depopulating. Um, there's this, you know, the, the, uh, so uh, a sort of child, uh, sort of a lack of baby production. I'm trying to think of the English, the English words <laughs> for these terms. I've been, I've been doing, I've been doing all these interviews in Japanese and, uh, and, 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 you know, shutter, shutter towns and stuff like that. So a lot of places, the youth are fleeing, like rapidly fleeing from these countryside cities and villages. And Morioka, it, it kind of had this opposite feeling and it felt like, oh my God, wow, there's, there's a future here. Um, there's a kind of fresh blood starting businesses, taking over businesses. You know, I talked with, um, business owners where it was, it was a father and son or father and daughter running the shop. And the daughter was super excited to carry on the father's business, you know, things like mm -hmm. that, that overall just really shocked me. So it was a combination of the energy, the, the positive energy, the youthful energy of the city. It's a beautiful city it's a it's a walkable city like it's it kind of rewards you for walking you know there's a the beautiful river running through it you you have all these bridges crossing the river you can walk down, down along the river people are fishing right there in the river there's kind of this like healthy commune communion happening between the people of the city and, and nature all around you know you have Iwate-san the mountain nearby kind of off in the distance close by um, you have some interesting Taisho architecture uh, late Meiji period architecture that uh, has been pretty well preserved. Um, and the food and the coffee uh, are really good. So to me, it was just, it was just silly that no one had kind of brought the city up to me before. Um, and it just felt like a great place that deserved a little more attention. So when the New York Times, well, my editor there asked me for a recommendation for the 52, 52 places article, um, I kind of immediately just thought, yeah, I mean, I want to, I want to elevate Morioka if I can. Um, but I, I didn't know it was going to be number two. <laughs> that was the big shot. <laughs> yeah. Next time you go there, it's just like going to be a red carpet for you and their building is statute, <laughs> great mouth. Thank God you can be a next no, city. I mean, I, or something. <laughs> well, I, I just, I went back a month ago and it was crazy. I met with the mayor. I met with the governor, you know, they did a press, I ran like a press conference alone with like 30, 40 journalists, like all, you know, lining up, asking questions. I mean, it was, people were stopping their cars. <laughs> people would stop their cars. They like, everyone recognized me. I was on TV so much. And they were like rolling their windows down, yelling, Arigato Kregu-san. You know, it's like, what was going It was insane. It was, it was, it was like being in the Truman Show. Mm. Yeah. Oh, wow. Maybe you get a totally free crazy. housing. You can move there if you want to. No, it's not that expensive. I'm happy to pay. If <laughs> wow. So, and uh, the interesting thing about, you know, your future, it's also about 
I'm not just a Murioka, but do you really like Japanese style cafe called the Kistaten? So, um, and you have really discovered fascinating, great coffee shops, uh, Kistaten cafes. So, uh, what is special about Japanese cafe to you? And you can maybe uh, tell us about what the idea of Kistaten is. Yeah, I mean, well, Kisaten are sort of mid-century Japanese coffee shops, essentially.、Um, you know, they kind of peaked. The peak number of Kisaten was in the early 80s, and it's kind of been in decline ever since then.、Um, and we're really sort of at the end of an era right now. So there's, there's that generation that were starting Kisa in the 60s, 70s, early 80s, who are now themselves in their 70s and 80s and 90s. And a lot of these old classic shops are. Starting to shut down,、um, but the the sort of American analog would be something like a Manhattan diner to a certain degree. So you know, really simple、uh, kind of comfort food, and、um, you know, the, the coffee usually sometimes you get kisaten that are very fanatical about their coffee and they go the extra mile and they've imported all sorts of fa- funky beans and fancy beans and some places do old beans so that they have. Old coffee beans that they serve you、um, for for kind of a, a extra extra bonus price,、um, but for the most part,、um, my history, you know, like I said at the beginning, I come from a very very simple background. I did not grow up eating fancy food or exotic food. I, you know, we ate the simplest things you could imagine: steak with just salt and pepper. You know, in some way, like almost like very Argentinian in a way,、um, but really, really simple cuisine. And so, when I got to Japan, I found it really difficult to eat anything. I mean, I, it was just all too complicated for me. Sushi freaked me out. You know, even like udon, certain udon dishes were just like too much for me. And so, <laughs> kisaten were really, you know, kind of、um, they were they were、uh, kind of like a, a A safe place for me. I could go to a kisa. I could smoke some cigarettes. I could read a book. I could have some bad coffee and eat some pizza toast. And like that for me was that was perfect. That was that was a very、um, uh, safe space for me <laughs> in Tokyo when I first got here. And so that was kind of the attraction. And then when I started doing the long walks,、uh, you know, I'd walk from Tokyo to Kyoto, take thirty days, and along the way. I would pass through these towns, and no matter how small and how depopulated, and how kind of like on the verge of disappearing a town was, I noticed that they all had two things: they had a barber shop, like a good tokoya, and a kisaten. And so, on those big walks, I just started every day going into a kisa, and. Getting usually pizza toast because a lot of them had pizza toast or you know just buttered toast or on toast or what you know what it, wherever where you know it, it kind of changes a little bit depending on where in Japan you are、um, and having a good cup of coffee and then the more I did that the more I realized that these kisaten were were these community hubs for these villages in these cities in the countryside and that they were serving a real purpose、um, kind of anthropologically for if you wanted to. Talk to folks in the town if you wanted to understand what was happening or the history of a place. A good a good way to do it was to go to the kisa, and just chat with the locals. And most people were really happy to chat. So that was kind of the progression of my 
kind of interest or, you know, kind of um, uh, my you quote unquote research or whatever into kisaten was it started because i couldn't eat anything else and so they were kind of nice and then the longer i of the walks i did the more i realized kisaten were sort of one of the few few places that were um kind of available uh no matter where you went in the country and then realizing they were just these great hubs to get to know locals so that was kind of the that was kind of the progression Mm, interesting, right? Because the kisaten is—it's not like a Starbucks. It's a the the time like flows more slowly and classically. There's like a you know crabby faced um, master um, barista. Um, it's like a very—you have to be very kind of well behaved in a way, but relaxed at the same time. People hush, quiet. There's a jazz music sometimes in the back or something like the time goes slower and uh, someone like very. Uh, observant and you know really appreciate uh, offline time. I think that's a really a sacred space, and um, yeah, and also um, you you mentioned uh, pizza toast. Um, even if it, it, I heard first Kisaten opened like you know eighteen eighty eight or something, and then there's a boom. Um, like Paulista in Ginza, they're still there. They opened in 1911 or something. And I passed by, it looks really nice. It's in a movie in the past and all those. Um, some places are preserved, but I think um, one of the reasons Kisaten still exists is the menu, like you mentioned. So pizza toast mm. is one of them and the thick Japanese style bread, which we featured um, in the last episode. Of Japanese, but Japanese style bread, fluffy, thick, the buttered toast, and also sometimes, like you said, the pizza toast is like on top of the bread, is the ketchup and, um, you know, garlic, all those like crazy. Um, some pizza ish, but it's very uniquely Japanese pizza toast. And those things are very addictive, and there's no attitude, like you said. This you can just enjoy it, comfort food, and it's not too expensive. And there's like a, it's not just a good coffee or sometimes bad coffee, but usually um, the combination of that, you know, you're welcome with the comforting, simple dishes, and they don't change. It's always waiting for you. That kind of kiss at them, I think it's a. Uh, the uniqueness you don't see anywhere in the world. Yeah, I mean it's kind of amazing because, like you say, the 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 menu is sort of set, um, but there's no, you know, they're all mo- they're, they are all run as mom and pop shops. It's not like there is some like great national or like Kisaten organization that everyone has to join and like become a member of and like agree to all serve the same things. It's like this weirdly organic sort of culinary culture that grew out of, I mean, really, it's like a post-war institution, right? I mean, like the real, the real, the, what we think of mostly as Kisaten today are really kind of post-war entities, I think, for the most part, you know, and the reason why it's toast, I mean, what, what I heard, you know, so it's a lot of, a lot of this morning culture, this like toast culture came from Nagoya, Ichinomiya, that area. And one of the, hypotheses I heard about why bread and why toast became so big was because all of the wheat that was being imported from America was coming in through the Nagoya port. So there were a lot of bread-related wheat processing sort of companies in Nagoya. And part of their mission to get like more people to eat bread 
was I think they went around and they pitched it really hard to cafes. <laughs> you know, so they were kind of <laughs> like, like like drug dealers of bread, uh, you know, post-war. <laughs> and and then I mean the nice thing about toast is like you all you need is a toaster oven to cook it. You know, no one uses like a toaster toaster, right? So it's all toaster ovens. And so you can cut it super thick. If you were using toaster toasters, it would you could only do thin thin toast. But because you have the uh, the toaster oven, they do the really thick. I mean, it's like two, you know, it can be like two or three inches of, of bread. And um, also, if all you need in your kitchen is a toaster oven, that makes it really accessible. You know, so opening a kisa, a lot of a lot of the people I talk to, you know, they don't have a next generation because they don't want their kids to run their kisa. It's like they didn't they didn't start their kisa because they're like, oh, I really love kisa ten and I want to run a cafe. It was most of them didn't want to become salarymen or salary women, and at least from the people I've I've spoken with, and so you know you can run a snacku or you can run a kisaten. You know those are kind of like the two pretty easy you know kind of like food related things you can do, and you set up a relationship with you know one of the coffee companies, Key Coffee or Caravan or whatever, and they'll deliver you. You know they'll 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 send a guy. He'll show you they'll show you how to do the pour overs. Uh, they'll deliver you fresh coffee every couple of weeks. Um, and you get a toaster oven, you get some bread delivered and boom, you've got a, you know, you've got a business. And, um, you know, I think that, that was really, to me also really hilarious is like the people that were running them, a lot of these places didn't necessarily see the, see the place as a special place. But like you say, there is something so authentic about it. Time does move more slowly there. Um, something about the, the lighting, the way uh, internal lighting and external lighting kind of plays and mixes together. It's not too bright inside. Um, a lot of the wallpapering uh, tends to be dark or the wood tends to be darker wood. Um, you know, the sofa isu, the sofa chairs. So everything is a little bit lower. It's almost like you're, it's, it, I always say it's kind of like in between a Western style seat and like sitting on tatami. You know, it's like the sofa isu, aren't quite real chairs. You know, you're kind of, everyone's a little like kind of squatting a little bit. Um, (laughs) And so it is this weird, like kind of nether zone sitting in between cultures and time. And I think that is what really makes it kind of special. And it's also what makes it hard to replicate today. Um, There is this sort of retro Showa, you know, Showa era boom that's kind of happening now. And I've seen a few people try to open up, quote unquote, like, you know, new kisaten in the Showa style. And it just kind of doesn't work. There's something about that full commitment in the moment that happened 40, 50 years ago that really created these special spaces. And uh, I think that's a big part of their charm. Mm, right. It's like a real British pub or try to kind of yeah, reproduce. Exactly. Right. You need a history behind it. So, exactly. yeah. And then it, because such a precious culture of Kisa dance kind of disappearing, but you created an amazing book, uh, Kisa by Kisa in 2020. So uh, do you want to talk about it? Yeah. I mean, that was a book that came out of the walk I did from Tokyo to Kyoto. And um, it was sort of a pandemic uh, instigated book because in 2020, my plan was to do all these talks and walks all around the world. And uh, the pandemic hit and everything ground to a halt. And I was stuck at home in Kamakura. And so I decided to take um, 
that walk that I had done, one of the walks that I had done, and sort of turn it into a book and see how that would feel and how that would come out. And so Kisa by Kisa was sort of the, the product of it. But it was, it's, you know, it's 100% a book that kind of owes its existence to the pandemic in sort of a positive way. Mm, right. So again, your uh, observation, deep observations of uh, Japanese culture and people. So the book is more about people, right? Who's supporting the culture and daily life of those people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my when I'm going on these walks, I'm actively, I had, you know, like I just don't have any interest in big tourist spots. I don't care. You know, other people can write about Fushimi Nari or, you know, Ginkakuji or whatever. And like, I'm not adding value to the world if I go to these places and, and write about them. And what I'm really interested in, again, because of my background as someone who came from a extremely working black, working class town, uh, you know, sort of lower middle class, blue collar. I like talking to real normal people. I just like, I, I, I feel most at ease talking to those people. I don't feel at ease at all when I'm in areas of Tokyo, like Hiro or, you know, uh, Denin Shofu, you know, stuff like that. I feel way better on the east side of town, you know, in uh, Kuramai or up in, uh, up in Yanaka. And so when I'm on these big, big walks, I love the countryside towns. And I love talking to the farmers and I love talking to the owners of these Kisa and I, you know, my, my goal is to just elevate these lives that I happen to brush across as much as, as possible, you know, in, in a way that um, I have a few rules about how I write about the things I write about. And one of the rules is to not, you know, other these other, other these people. So it's not to like, it's not to go, oh, look at this bizarre farmer or look at this weird, quirky Kisa. It's to go, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to engage with this person directly and uh, hopefully on a, on a level that feels like we're meeting each other um, in a way that, that feels symbiotically elevating. So we're, we're both coming away from this interaction, feeling better, having learned something feeling energized by that interaction, by, by, by life, by, you know, this, this chance encounter. And so I really try to focus on that element and that feeling in the writing. And so Kisa by Kisa, you know, the vignettes I'm doing of these Kisa Ten or the owners or the people I meet along the road, I try to stay in that register, that tone of elevation and respect. And so that's kind of, that's kind of the, the driving ethos of the book. Mm, interesting, right? Because if you go to visit um, any big cities, like even including Tokyo or Kyoto, you know that people you come across, they are, they have their outside face and you're serving you or like even stranger, it's very hard to peel off their, um, you know, social face, like including myself, I feel I'm kind of acting, not me. Right. I'm not like the person being a person with my best friend or something so I think what are you doing it's really um, revealing that outside face and you communicate because you are uh, by nature a kind of a very relaxed person and you're curious genuinely curious about people so yeah that's why you ended up making such a great book and uh, where can we buy the book Kisa by Kisa if our listeners want to uh, take a look. 
Oh, you can buy. I mean, if you just Google Kisa by Kisa, K-I-S-S-A by K-I-S-S-A, um, the first result or second result should be the shop. Um, so it's uh, shop.specialprojects.jp is where the book is sold. Um, yeah, and we just went into our fourth printing, which is crazy. I can't believe we've sold out of the first three printings. And the fourth, fourth printing as of now is um, about half halfway sold through. So it's doing well. Um, I'm really grateful for everyone, everyone who supported it and bought the book and all the feedback, all the wonderful notes I've gotten about it. And, and it's been really a really wonderful journey. Mm. Right. And if you go to uh, craigmod.com, um, there's books and essays. So you can find that too. Oh, yeah. um, and also, um, yeah, if I don't mention your newsletters, uh, I'll be missing out something big here. So you have two newsletters that everybody can subscribe to for free on your website, craigmod.com. Yep. One is Rodem. Uh, published monthly, and the other one is the weekly newsletter, uh, Rich Line. So uh, tell us about these amazing newsletters. Yeah, well, yeah, Ridgeline aspires to be weekly. It was weekly. For like two years, it was weekly. It was really like rigidly weekly. And then last year, um, it got a little little looser. Um, and I'm trying to get back onto a, a really rigid weekly schedule again. But theoretically, it's weekly. And Ridgeline is about walking. I just was doing so much walking and I wanted to write more about walking and I wanted to write more kind of formally and, and do book reviews related to walking related books. And um, I thought it would be good to have a, a, a newsletter space, you know, uh, explicitly for that subject. So it's, you know, it's kind of, it's the walking newsletter and then, um, and walking mainly in Japan. And then Rodin is just my old newsletter. I've been running and writing Rodin for, I think, over 10 years now, maybe 11 years, um, maybe 12 years, actually. It's kind of crazy. Um, and Rodin is just my general newsletter, and it tends to be about literature, uh, film. Um, I wrote recently about Mori going back to Morioka. So I wrote my, the recent Rodin is called The Morioka Experience, and that was kind of a behind-the-scenes um, breakdown of, of sort of what happened with the Morioka articles and then going back into town and just, you know, really deconstructing how that felt. Um, and before that, I wrote about archetypes, like so how archetypes have, you know, influenced me, so people I grew up with, people later in my life, just the power of having, uh, you know, a good archetype in your life or, uh, in terms of like what you aspire to or what you can think is possible. Um, it's, it's an extremely powerful concept. And uh, I was just trying to formalize that in, in the, one of the more recent newsletters and help people maybe see how they can begin to think about archetypes in their lives. So how they can either pull in better archetypes or they can recognize negative archetypes about, you know, people that are maybe um, sending them in, into bad places and can start to kind of call that out of their lives. So really the, the breadth of the, the newsletters uh, a little bit all over the place, which is why having Ridgeline be so focused on walking is kind of... Um, you know, it's kind of freeing in that it's it's so simple to explain. But mm. you should subscribe to both. They're free. Right. Yeah. And your picture is amazing. You're a photographer. So uh, something like um, stunning, you know, captures real like life. You know, it's, it's not a static picture. You feel like uh, there's an energy coming out of the photos. So I like that too. So um, and also, uh, yeah. So, um, well, let's see. Um, 
I have to choose. I have like million questions. Let's see. So you have published a special seven-day edition of your newsletter in January called Tokyo Tokyo no, Tokyo 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 Square. So uh, which I truly enjoyed reading over uh, the course of seven days. So uh, what was uh, that Tokyo 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 Square, and what did you want to communicate to the audience? Yeah, so one of the things I, I like to do is I run what I call pop-up newsletters. So they're short-term newsletters, so it can be um, a week in the case of Tokyo, 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 or it can be a month sometimes, or it can be over the course of a walk. So I've run a ton of pop-ups now. I've lost count, but maybe, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten pop-up newsletters over the last three or four years. And what what I like about these is that most newsletters you subscribe and it's going to go on forever. There's no end date and people tend to like stop writing them at some point and you kind of get sick of it. And it's just this weird commitment that has no edges to it. And so what I love about a pop-up newsletter is it's like, look, Hey, I'm going to do this for seven days. I'm going to send you something every day. And at the end of it, I'm going to unsubscribe you. I'm deleting the newsletter. I'm deleting you from my from my newsletter software. You won't get anything else from me unless you unless you subscribe to something else. So Tokyo, Tokyo, Tokyo was the second Tokyo, Tokyo, Tokyo. I did the first one in August of last year, and it was so popular. It was like by far the most popular thing I've ever newsletter I've ever done. And I thought, and I had so much fun doing it. I thought I want to do another one, and so I did. I want to do a winter edition. So last August was hot, disgusting, super humid, really physically uh, exhausting. It was just so disgusting out. Never, don't do big walks in Tokyo in August. That's like, my biggest, <laughs> if you take away nothing, take away nothing from this, from, from what I'm saying today, don't ever do a big walk in Tokyo in August. <laughs> so that was, it was really fascinating, but also really painful. And so I thought January would be great, beautiful winter light. And it was, it was, it was wonderful. So I did the second edition, Tokyo, Tokyo, Tokyo 2, um, in January. And I, I just set off from the same point every day. And each day I kind of have uh, a little bit of a theme to the walk. And I'll walk, I try to walk about 20 kilometers. That seems to be a, you know, a good distance. Some days are a little bit longer. Some days are a little bit more. But I walk 20 kilometers. And along the way, I stop in restaurants, kisaten, talk to folks, barbers, you know, train attendants, whatever. I, you know, I talk to folks. And at the end of the day, I write uh, and I'm photographing all day. I'll edit the photos down and I'll write, you know, two, three, four thousand word essays. And they go out that night. That's kind of the rule. It's like I've got to, you know, I do the 20 kilometers. I do the 30 kilometers. I sit down. It's like 5 p.m. usually when I sit down to start writing. And I'll do four, five, six hours of writing sometimes, you know, editing putting together a newsletter, getting it out. And it's this sort of, um, a couple of readers have, have written in and, and really tagged it accurately, I think, as performance art. I mean, that really is what it feels like. It's this asceticism, ascetic practice of doing the physical labor of the walk, gathering the experiences, and then really distilling, trying to distill it um, as artfully as possible at the end of the day and then publishing it, having that deadline. You know, and during that Tokyo, Tokyo, Tokyo newsletter in January, I, I published 25,000 words over the course of a week, which is crazy. <laughs> it's a lot of, that's a lot of words. So it's this, it's this kind of incredible creative and physical act. And it, 
I find it really freeing as a, as a writer and uh, it, it sort of creates these hallucinatory moments and spaces where you don't have time to really overthink things and you're just reacting in the moment to memories and, um, and who you're encountering and what you're encountering. And I just try to stay with it and be honest. And at the end of the day, kind of do an honest accounting of what, of what happened. And so I'm glad that you enjoyed it. It's, it's a lot of fun. I'll be doing, I'll be doing one more some point this year, um, maybe in the spring or maybe in the fall. And then I want to take all those and, and do a book out of them, out of those. Mm, yeah, I can't wait. Uh, by the way, listeners, 20 kilometers is about uh, 12 and a half miles. So it's a good distance, but it's a long distance. too. So it was very healthy, I'm sure. But I'm mean, just yeah. curious, what's your motivation, though, to walk and discover and write? You know, I mean, nobody is really... Uh, you know, put the gun on your head and then write because this is really time and energy consuming. But what's your personal motivation doing this? No, I, there is a guy with a gun to my head every day. That's the only way I do it. <laughs> I, I hire him, I pay him. He gets paid $20,000 a year to hold the gun to my head. No, um, it's, you know, I, it's like going to the gym, right? You know, it's like you go, oh, why do you go to the gym? Well, because it feels really good to go to the gym um, and the, the more you go, kind of the better it feels. And you realize that, you know, being healthy is, uh, is sort of a, a delight and, uh, of, of, of life uh, in and of itself. And so I started doing these walks and I started doing the writing connected to the walks slowly. I kind of built up to it. So I do a couple days, I do a four day walk and I was like, Ooh, four days. That's really big. I did an eight day walk. Ooh, eight days. That's really big. And maybe at the end of the eight day walk, we'll put together like a, a simple photo book. You know, I, I started doing projects like that. And then I started doing, well, let me walk to Kyoto and I'll do one sentence a day. I'll, I'll publish and I'll take photos and I'll send one photo and one sentence a day. So I, I started, you know, really building up like you would build up in the gym, you know, lower weights, building up to bigger weights. And, um, I, the more I did it and the more I sat with it and the more I produced, the more it felt life affirming and the, the richer, the richer the experiences became. And the more and more I felt at the end of the days, like I was finally understanding what a full day really meant, like what it meant to live and fully extract everything you could extract from the day and how that felt really just so true to being alive like in a, in, in in a really in a really kind of reductive weird way it's like why has everyone fought the wars we fought to get here why has everyone struggled to do the struggling we've struggled to get here and it felt like going doing these walks in this in the way that I do it in this kind of like fully present fully attentive way and the asceticism of it and kind of the physical uh, Arger of it, and then the creative work of it. I get to the end of the day, and I could die, and there would be no moment of regret for that day or for that week. And that's just a really good feeling. That feels great. And I've also found the more I do this, and the more I share, the more I find I'm elevating people, and I'm elevating. I'm able to elevate places, and that feels really good. And the readers as well feel elevated and they feel they, they tend to be taking something special away from a lot of these projects. And I'd say the Morioka thing 
was a direct result of all of this. You know, it's like I wouldn't have discovered Morioka if I hadn't been doing these these walks and these projects. And I wouldn't have written about Morioka in the way I did. And I wouldn't have kind of engaged with Morioka in the way I did if I hadn't built up this training. And so then when the New York Times came and asked, hey, you know, where should we recommend? And I was able to strongly advocate for Morioka. I felt like that was sort of an apotheosis of kind of a lot of this work. You know, it's like that's the ultimate elevation is, you know, getting a city like Morioka, which is excited and happy to receive the attention from everyone I've talked to has been excited about it. No, you know, and it's a city that can handle it. It's not going to be crushed by the attention, but like that kind of elevation um, feels really great. I mean, that I, I find it unlikely that I will have more of an impact in any of the other projects I do than, than I had with this New York times piece for Morioka, but it, it comes out of the same ethos. So to me, it's all part and parcel of the same thing. So no one has a gun to my head, but I don't need a gun to my head because the process and the, and the doing of these projects feels so life affirming and I get so much out of it. And I know other people are getting so much out of it that it's, it's really not, it's not a big stretch to do. Mm. Well, you totally just elevated my mind. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's also just fun. It's just fun. It's fun. Your body feels good. Like, if you do a 40 day walk, I mean, you look good. Like if you like not, you know, not to be narcissistic or whatever, but like you walk for 40 days, you can kind of eat anything you want and your body is just going to like turn into this, you know, like super body, you know, it's like your legs are going to be super strong. Your abs come back out, you know, your shoulders get, you know, bigger, you're carrying your pack. It's, it just feels good. It really feels good. It feels like you're alive and like meeting all these People, it, it just, it's fun. Every day you feel, I guess, you know, what can happen in the, in the routine, everyday routine is you, you, you forget the potential that every day holds, right? It's like you do the same things, you go to the same places, you see the same people and you forget, you become a nerd to this kind of sameness. And when I do a big walk like this, I remember what is possible and I feel in my entire body, this kind of breadth of possibility that a single day holds and a richness that a single day holds. And I try to bring that back to my everyday, my day to day. Um, and I, you know, that's a big thing that I'm advocating for is just, there's so, so much richness to be pulled out of every day. And if you really lean into it and you shut off the internet, pay attention, like it's, it's pretty incredible. It's pretty magical. And, uh, you know, that's a big takeaway for me. Mm, wow, I'm sure our listeners had a lot of big takeaway from your uh, words. I, oh my God, yeah, this we have to keep listening to this part um, over and over again to um, get the energy out of your, I mean, I think your honesty and also, you know, just live this moment, um, I think really is helping, not just Morika City, like people surrounding you and yeah, you're really such an inspiring person, and I'm so glad we got a chance to talk to you. So, but you know, you have spent 22 years in Japan now, and uh, what part of Japan keeps attracting you? Uh, you could have been like India or China or I don't know, like Berlin or somewhere, but you decided to stay in Japan. So, what's the reason for that? Yeah, I mean, the plan was never to stay as long as I've stayed, um, and. 
it's been this kind of like tumbling forward of, of being here and working on projects here and then, you know, forming relationships and sort of getting more and more entangled, but really, um, not to be, not to be really, really kind of like basic about this, but like the stuff that to me was the most seductive about Japan was healthcare, a lack of violence, a lack of guns, functioning public transportation, a sense of kind of like a socialist society of people being supported. Um, and so living in a place that had all of those, uh, those kind of elements to it, to me was, was, was really in, in inspiring and important. And, and a lot of it was in contrast to where I came from, which there were a lot of guns where I came from. There was a lot of violence where I came from. There was no healthcare. People were struggling. And so I think I didn't recognize this explicitly when I moved to Japan, but the more I've lived here, the more I've, I've drawn kind of power and energy from the fact that people are taken care of, the fact that things do generally work in the way you'd expect them to work. And as America becomes more and more kind of dystopian in some ways and bizarre and, and really sad in a lot of ways, um, I walk Japan and what I'm taking away from a lot of, a lot of this walking is I'm bearing witness to a thing that functions. It's not perfect, but it is showing me what is possible in the world. And that feels so hopeful. And so even today, I know a lot of Japanese people think Japan is like going to the birds and like falling apart and like bad stuff. Even today, I mean, I, I get so much hope moving through this country, being here. I'm so grateful. I'm an immigrant. I'm not, I don't consider myself an expat. I'm, I'm, I'm here, you know, I'm not going anywhere. So I'm, I'm an immigrant. I'm an, I'm an immigrant in Japan. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really, those are the elements that to me feel, feel so special and, uh, and kind of keep me keep me excited. Mm. Hey, well, Japan got lucky. So uh, good luck. <laughs> and uh, where can we find your updates online and on social media? Yeah, I mean, just craigmod.com or on Twitter, craigmod, Instagram, craigmod. Um, pretty much if you just search for craigmod, you'll get it all. And uh, you can sign up for the newsletters on my on my website. And there's links to buy Kisa by Kisa and, uh, and stuff like that. So mm. take a peek. Okay, so yeah, hopefully you can come back and uh, talk more about your discoveries, rediscoveries about Japan. So thank you so much for joining us today, Craig. Absolutely. Right, so listeners. We Thanks have, for having me. Yeah, thank you. Amazing. So, well, good luck. And listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanids at heritageradionetwork.org or akikotaema.com. Japan Needs is a weekly program and is always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer today is Amin Benjamin, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japan Needs is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.